Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Welcome. Good to see so many of you this evening. Uh, my name is Stephen Castello. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill Forest Hills, and it is my joy and honor to uh, welcome you this evening as we celebrate Good Friday. It is a good Friday. And so whether you're here from City on a Hill Brighton, City on a Hill Brookline, City on a Hill Somerville, uh, Forest Hills, or if you just popped in to visit with us, we are so glad that you came to join us this evening. And uh, tonight we do, we celebrate Good Friday. And as we think about that, it seems kind of odd to celebrate a death. Uh, celebrating death is not what we imagine. When we go to a funeral, we don't have fireworks. We don't have streamers. Uh, we wear black. We mourn. We, we mourn death. Even when we imagine the worst person we could possibly think of dying, there's a sense within us, no matter how wicked that person is, that something wrong has occurred. And when we think about what it means to celebrate Good Friday, tonight we are called to slow down, to pause, to remember, to reflect, to ponder on Jesus' work for us on the cross, that Jesus, God the Son, would go, after taking on flesh, living a perfect life you and I could not live, would go to a sinner's cross dying in our place. And the reason we need to stop and ponder and reflect is too often we run right to Easter Sunday. We run to the, to the joy of Easter Sunday. We run to the hope of the resurrection, yet miss what God wants us to see on Good Friday, to look at ourselves, to look ourselves in the mirror and see our sin and see the sin that put Jesus on the cross on our behalf. All throughout Lent, we've been looking at this, this idea of denying ourselves and, and tuning our hearts to see how Jesus alone can satisfy us and remind us of our need for a Savior. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the series called The Road to Redemption, how Jesus takes the road, living the way that we could never live, dying the death that we could deserve, walking the road that only he could walk to save us from our sins. And last week, we looked at the triumphal entry. We looked at Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the coming King in all his glory, people singing, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet just a few days later, we see the hope of the world hanging upon a Roman cross, nails driven through his hands and his feet, bleeding and dying. This is not the image of the king of glory that you and I would imagine. Yet we notice that in Jesus going to the cross, he goes not because he was forced, but he goes willingly. Jesus went to the cross of his own volition, doing the will of the Father. And this is why verse 46 tells us that Jesus committed himself, committed his spirit to the Father, that no one took his life from him. Though his death was an unjust murder, Jesus willingly gave his life for you and I that we could be reconciled to God. And the question is, why? Why would a king suffer for other people? A king has no reason to suffer. A king gets to tell other people what to do. Other people come and do the bidding of a king. Why would Jesus lay his life down for us? It's not because Jesus did anything wrong. 
Clearly from the text, Jesus is innocent. We've all seen scandals involving leaders, right? Just this week, we saw that the Lieutenant Governor of New York got in trouble for bribery. New York's having a rough year. Um, And and he is going to get his just just punishment. Jesus did not receive a just punishment. He's clearly innocent. And Luke, as he writes chapter 23, tells us four times that Jesus was innocent. Pilate says, I can't find anything that this man has done. Herod, who really just wanted to meet Jesus as a spectacle because of all the hype around Jesus, said, I can't find anything wrong that he's done. The thief on the cross in verse 41 says that surely this man is innocent. And also the centurion, as he praises God, said that he is innocent. He didn't die on the cross because he was unworthy. Jesus was clearly worthy of all praise. We have all seen things and items that don't live up to the hype, right? Does anybody remember Google Glass? Anybody dumb enough to buy Google Glass? Don't, don't admit that out loud. We all thought we were walking around these weird looking glasses and the internet would just be at, the, at, at our, the touch of our fingertips. It didn't last very long. Jesus lives up to the hype with every miracle and every person that he touched and every person that he healed, every person he was able to allow to walk again. Jesus lived up to the hype as the Messiah and the more and more and more the people saw him, they saw God's goodness and mercy and power. But we see the suffering Jesus at the cross. And we're not, we're seeing, we see not just why he suffered, but the type of king who suffers for us, the one who is only one who is innocent, the only one who is worthy, our suffering servants, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, the prince of peace, the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And we ask the question, why would this king suffer for us? And the answer is simply love. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And we see so many passages throughout the scriptures that describe the love of God, that what greater love than a man has than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That while we were still yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. In this, we know love that Christ would die for us. And so tonight, we're going to unpack six ways that the cross shows us the suffering love of Jesus. And the first we see is that Jesus was counted among us. Jesus was counted among us. Verses 32 and 33, we see that Jesus is led away to be crucified. If you're not familiar with Roman crucifixion, it was an incredibly painful death. It was the most gruesome form of Roman execution. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified because it was so gruesome. It was too inhumane. They would take two pieces of wood, either make an X, a Y, most often a T, and sometimes they would tie the person to the cross or they would nail, like Jesus, their hands and their feet to it. And as the person hung from the cross, their arms would begin to sag and their lungs would begin to fill with fluid. And the way that you would actually die was not from the nails being driven through your hands and your feet, but you would actually suffocate on your own bodily fluids. It could take several days 
It was a brutal form of execution. And Jesus is put to death between two criminals. All four gospel accounts tell us that there was a criminal on the right and a criminal on the left. But only Luke goes into the details of the interactions that Jesus had with them. Why is that? It's not that the the gospels are telling different stories. In fact, they're telling the same stories with different emphases. And if you look at the reason that Luke wrote his letter, wrote his gospel, was to his friend Theophilus, who he really wanted to help understand Jesus and why he came. He wants them to understand what kind of savior he is. And we have a savior who would be counted among the guilty, who would be counted among those who commit crimes that are worthy of the death penalty, that the only innocent one would choose to become like us, to hang out with us and get in the middle of guilty people. You probably, probably heard that you become like the five people you hang out with most, right? Jesus came and hung out among transgressors. And this detail is important because it fulfills Isaiah 53, 12, which we just read a couple of minutes ago, that Jesus was counted among the transgressors, that the one without sin would become sin, bearing it for us, that our God would identify with the lowliest and the lost and the neediest and the worst, and he would be right there among us. And I say among us, because if you notice who else is there, It's not just the criminal on the right and the criminal on the left. You see in verse 35, the crowd standing by and watching for entertainment. You see the rulers who jeered at Jesus. You see the soldiers who thought this really wasn't their fight and were selling off Jesus's clothing to one another. So whether you find yourself to be the lowliest or the most important, the most immoral or or the most self-righteous, the best rule keeper or a skeptic, whether you wear your brokenness on the outside or on the inside, you are still a transgressor and Jesus counted himself among you. He counted himself among us. He sees the very worst of humanity and he steps in to every bit of our mess. He sees the worst of the human heart and yet Jesus still took on the form of a servant giving his life for us. He counted himself among us, but not just that. Secondly, Jesus asked God to forgive us. In the midst of all this cruelty and humiliation and mockery, Jesus didn't seek vengeance. He didn't call down all the wrath of heaven upon them, even though they and us deserve it. He says these words, Father, forgive them. I'm gonna be honest, those are not the words that I would say. I get cut off in traffic and I don't say, Father, forgive them. And in this, by asking for our forgiveness, he shields us from the wrath of God. Charlie Date says that while on the cross, the Roman soldiers guarded Jesus, or so they thought. Who could guard God? He was actually guarding them. While taunted to come down, Jesus kept heaven's wrath from coming down on them. Likewise, Jesus has guarded us in our rebellion. Oh, may we trust him. It's interesting why he asked God to forgive them. He says, God, forgive them for they do not know what they do. It's not like they could play ignorant. It's not, he's not saying that they didn't know that what they were doing is wrong. It's not like in the winter when you move someone's chair out of their parking spot after it snowed. We all know that's wrong. But it's the gravity of who they did it to. They didn't understand who they mocked. 
They didn't understand who they disregarded. They didn't understand who they rejected. And so for you and I, our sins and our missteps are not simply us doing right and wrong. We are missing the mark of God's good and holy standard. And when we do so, we reject his goodness, we reject his kindness, we reject his grace, and we usurp him in his rightful place to be God in our lives. And when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, he wasn't just talking about criminals. He wasn't just talking about rulers or soldiers. He was talking about us. He was thinking about you and I and all the ways that we trust in other things over Jesus. He was thinking about you and I and all the ways that we look elsewhere for satisfaction, all the ways that we make his name small, the ways that we harden our hearts against him. What he's saying is he's saying, do not give them what they deserve. That's love. But love without justice is not love. Someone had to bear the weight of that sin. Someone had to bear the punishment of that upon their shoulders. It'd be like if someone were to come and steal something from you and the judge were just to look and say, you know what, just forgive them. It's okay. It's no big deal. Let's let's let that slight go. There's only restoration. There's only love if restoration has been made. See, Jesus keeps heaven's wrath at bay by thirdly bearing the full weight of our sin. All the guilt, all the shame poured out on Jesus. Meaning every sin that you have ever committed, Jesus took upon his shoulders. All the punishment that was due your sin, all the shame of the sin that has been committed against you was thrown upon the shoulders of Jesus as he hung upon the cross. All the mockery, all the humiliation that we feel, Jesus experienced that here on the cross and he felt the full weight of it so much to the fact that in verse 36, he rejected the sour wine that may have dulled his senses. Some scholars say it may may have been to dull it. Others say it may have been mockery, be about the equivalent of like cheap gas station wine. Jesus denied it so that he would feel the full weight and sorrow of our sin. He became sin who knew no sin that we might know, that we might become the righteousness of God. Meaning that when you feel shame, you have a savior who knows your shame. When you feel guilt, you have a savior who took your guilt. When you are unjustly treated or abandoned, Jesus took every ounce of that for you. And he did it so he could set you free that you could live in and enjoy the forgiveness of God. Hebrews 4 tells us that for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Fourthly, Jesus shows his love and his suffering in that he died as our king. We look at the criminals on the cross in verse 39, and we see two very distinct ways to approach Jesus. You can either reject Jesus or embrace him, but you're doing one or the other. Jesus is either your king or he's not. And the first criminal taunts Jesus by saying, are you not the Christ? Not, not are you the Christ? Not wondering if Jesus is the Christ, but saying, come on, if you're so great, prove it. If you're so good and you're so holy and you're so mighty, get off this cross, save me and you, and let's get out of here. And we may not think that we respond like that, but often we pray that way when we say, God, if you'll just let me have this, then I'll follow you. God, if you'll just get me out of this situation, 
I'll believe you. God, if you just allow me to have this relationship, then I will, will trust you. And what we are doing when we do that is we have the same heart. We say, God, prove it. Prove it. Prove yourself and then I'll follow you. But here's what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to save you from a situation. He didn't come to save you from a circumstance. He came to save you from sin and death. He came to be your king. And the second criminal gets this. Verse 40, he understands his sin rightly. He understands, he says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He understood that his offense was against a holy God. He got it. He understood it. Verse 41, he sees himself rightly. He says, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But he also sees that Jesus is righteous and holy when he says, this man has done nothing wrong. And he makes this simple confession. Jesus, remember me. I don't know if you ever had a friend who became famous. Anybody have a friend who ever became famous and you're kind of, hey, just remember the little people when you're, when you're famous one day. That's a little bit about what he's saying here. He's saying, remember me. Remember me when? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man still believes, even though Jesus is hanging on a cross about to die, that one day he is going to be the king that he can hope in. And often we think of the criminal's confession as some sort of like last minute full court buzzer beater. The guy hasn't hit a basket all game and then banks one from the backcourt. That's what we imagine. But this is a strong confession because he realizes this is not the end for Jesus. And if this is not the end for Jesus, it's not the end for him either. He's still the king. He's still going to reign. He not only sees himself rightly and his sin rightly, but he sees the cross rightly and he sees that Jesus is his only hope. And you notice here, what does the second criminal bring to the party? Nothing. The old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. This is the gospel that you and I bring nothing to the table, that Jesus does all the work on our behalf. Tim Keller says, the gospel is not that I work, follow the example of Jesus Christ, and then he blesses me. But the gospel is that I'm sentenced and I'm lost. And my sentence would be final, except it fell on him. Jesus only can possibly win by losing, and I can only possibly save myself by admitting I can't save myself. And what does Jesus respond by, to this simple confession of faith. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. What did Jesus say earlier in John chapter 10? He said, I know my sheep and they know my name. He knows those that he came to save. He calls them his own and he will have us forever. I love the way Alistair Begg described a situation with this thief as he entered into heaven. He, he, he told this story of what it might look like. And he says that... Um, he said, maybe the Holy Spirit over there, I'm not sure. Uh, okay, we're good. Um, so he, he talks about this, this story of what it would be like if the thief were to enter into heaven. And he comes to St. Peter and St. Peter's like, hey, uh, Alistair Beck says, hey, you know, um, Peter's like, hey, what, why should you come to heaven? He goes, I don't know. Some guy just said I could be here. And he said, well, well, tell me about the doctrine of justification. He's like, I, I don't know. I got nothing. He said, well, well tell me, tell me like, like three of the 10 commandments. He goes, I, I don't have anything. He goes, well, wh why should you get to be here? And he says, because the man on the middle cross said I could come. The, the man on the middle cross said we could come. 
the one who laid his life down for us as our king said we could come to him. And, and the fifth thing we see is that Jesus made a way for us. Jesus made a way, and we see in, in verses 44 and 45, the darkest day in human history where from the sixth to the ninth hour, which would have been from about noon to 3 p.m., darkness covers the earth. And this is not an eclipse because the Passover would happen during a full moon. There's some sort of supernatural phenomenon happening as creation itself is mourning. The injustice is happening to Jesus as the sun's light failed. We see the weight of God's judgment, but we also see the hope that comes in this and we see the way that we come to God. It says that the curtain tore. Now, a little bit about the temple. There were certain levels of access that you could have in the temple. And there was a place called the Holy of Holies that only one man could go into one time a year. He was the high priest. And he would go into there where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the very presence of God was. And he would have to purify himself before he went in. And he would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and make atonement for the sins of the people. And you can imagine over hundreds of years, different high priests, millions upon millions upon millions of sacrifices that were never enough. But as that, as that curtain tears, it's saying that the work is finished that there is one sacrifice that has occurred that means there will never have to be another one. Or as Spurgeon says, that Christ has paid the debt which all the torments of eternity could not have paid. But it's not just that, it means that the very presence of God has come to us. That the curtain has been torn, that God took on flesh. He came to us, he counted himself among us to purchase our forgiveness by bearing the full weight of our sin and dying and raising again as our king. He made a way for us to have face-to-face -face access with God. And he did this lastly in his love to give all glory to the Father. In verse 46, we see Jesus' ultimate goal is to fulfill the will of the Father so that we can glorify the Father. He says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The, wor the work is finished. And you see the immediate response of the centurion is to praise God. And that is God's desire for us this evening as we look at the crucified Christ is to praise the one who gave himself for us. And the end goal of this is worship. You see those who are beating their chest, bearing their guilt, going home on Friday and on Sunday, they will celebrate the resurrected Jesus. And as we remember the death of Christ today, let us remember that on Sunday, we celebrate a risen King. But tonight we're called to sit and ponder and consider the cross's message and meaning and while in verse 49, we see the women standing around watching the scene, St. Augustine over 1600 years ago wrote these words calling us to enter into that waiting and that longing. He said, as they were looking on, so we too gaze on his wounds as he hangs. We see his blood as he dies. We see the price offered by the redeemer. He bows his head as if to kiss you. His heart is made bare open as it were in love to you. His arms are extended that he may embrace you. His whole body is displayed for your redemption. Ponder how great these things are. Let all this be rightly weighed in your mind as he was once fixed to the cross in every part of his body for you. So he may now be fixed in every part of your soul. Let's pray.